You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. Trust is something that does not come easy. I mean, you don't have to live very long before you begin to get trust issues, right? Um, What do you do if someone you trust or should trust is doing something you don't like? Well, you have some options. Uh, If you're driving down the freeway and there's somebody in front of you and they're going 25 in a 65 mile an hour zone, you can honk at them, you can pass them. Um, You work for someone who is making your life miserable and you look and you're able to see where the business is going, the direction is not going to be good, they're they're ruining the business, what do you do? Well, you you, you can go take another job, leave. Or if the benefits of staying there are greater than the pain, you can just stay, but your heart's not in it. I mean, trust is not something that just comes easy for most of us, especially for kids. I think most kids think their parents, well, they know their parents are brain dead. Um, They know their parents had kids to provide cheap labor. So um, uh, they're stuck back in the 90s somewhere. Just trust doesn't come easy. So what do you do if you believe in God but you have a hard time trusting him. What do you do if you look back on something in your life, either now or in your past, and you go, why didn't you do something? You could have. Why did you do what you did? Why didn't you do something you you, you didn't do? Why? And you've got this mind of questioning about, about God. You believe in him. You're just having a hard time trusting him. That's the situation with Habakkuk. So we've been in this series a couple of weeks and we'll finish next week. But let me give you the backstory. Habakkuk is a prophet, and his job is to take God's message that he receives and give it to God's people. And he lives about 600 years before the birth of Christ during one of the darkest times in Judah's history. He sees his country in a free fall, uh, a decline of, of morality and justice. And he loves his country. He loves his city. He loves the people in his city. But everywhere he looks, he sees, he sees violence. It's like the whole society is coming apart at the seams. It's a litigious society. The courts are jammed and verdicts are not being given on the basis of justice or truth, but on the basis of who provides the most money or who is most influential, most powerful. And it just breaks his heart. It weighs heavy on his heart. And his question is, Lord, why don't you do something about this? And chances are there is there's more than one person in this room, and you watch the news, and you kind of look around at our own country, and you see what's happening. You kind of feel like Habakkuk, what is going on, and why, why do you don't... I had a couple come to me um, not too long ago, and they are struggling with the idea of having children because they don't know if they want to bring kids into a world like this. I had someone else come to me, and they said... How can God allow these school shootings to go on? Why doesn't he do something? And that question, children all over the world who are suffering, starving in the Sudan, why doesn't God do something? And that's Habakkuk's question. Why don't you hear my prayers? In fact, if you look at Habakkuk 1, 2, chapter 1, the second verse, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. So 
God, I'm looking for help and I'm looking for salvation and it's like you're not listening and on top of that, you're, it's like you're indifferent. It's, it's like you don't care. And Habakkuk, if you read this book, he is passionate. He is emotional. And some of you are very passionate. You're very emotional. And God can handle your emotions. And God can handle your passion. And rather than shutting Habakkuk down because of these questions that he has, it's like God invites him in. God can handle your questions. He can handle the passions that you feel. You cannot shock him. It's like, God, I'm so frustrated. Really? I didn't know that. Uh, When you were cussing and throwing things against the wall, I, I thought you were fine. No, no, no. He knows your heart. He knows your mind. And he loves you. He's a father who loves you. And when you pray, you're not bringing new information to him. You're inviting him into your situation. So prayer is not informing God so much as inviting him in. And God does say to Habakkuk in this book, we saw it last week, he says, I am doing something. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, that ruthless, violent nation, to discipline my people. And if Habakkuk had questions before, he's in a tailspin now. What? Because he knows the Babylonians. He knows what they're like. They're psycho. They, they kill babies. They abuse women. They destroy and torture anyone who stands against them. And they love it. Their God is violence. Uh, they leave a trademark of human skulls packed in a pyramid um, wherever they go and they conquer a city. That, that's their trademark. And Habakkuk knows that. And he says, Lord, we may have our sins and our failings, but we are nothing like them. And you're going to use them to punish us. So he's, he's just struggling to understand God and, and trust God because trust does not come easily. So what do you do? And he gives us two things. And there's only two points in this sermon this morning. Number one, he says, anchor yourself in the truth that you know about God. When you're not, when you just don't understand or when you feel like God is not listening, Go back to the truth that you know about God. You see, your life has a gravitational center around which everything revolves. And you've got a choice about what that gravitational center can be. It can be you, your feelings, your experiences, your thinking, your perspective, your emotions. Or it can be the true God as he's found in Jesus Christ. And if you anchor your life around and the gravitational center of your life is your thinking, your feelings, your emotions, your perspective, you're in trouble because your life is a roller coaster. Our emotions come and go. And there are days when you wake up and go, I'm a Christian. Other days you wake up, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. God loves me. God hates me. And if you anchor your life around your thinking, your circumstances, when things are going well, you feel good. When things are going bad, you feel bad. And it even changes how you think about God. Things are going good in your life. God's good. Things are not going so good. God is not so good. So Habakkuk just, he says, I'm going to go to the thing. I'm going to put my feet, stabilize my feet so I'm knocked over so easily on the things that I already know about God. That's chapter 1, verse 12. Take a look at it. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them 
for reproof. He tells us five or six things that he knows about God that he's certain of. A lot of things he doesn't understand, but he knows these things. He says, you're everlasting. God is eternal. We live in time. We're bounded by time. We're limited by time. God is above time. God created time. God rules time. God can come into time. He did in the person of Jesus Christ, and he can do it in your life, but he's not limited by time. We have a beginning. He had no beginning, and he will have no end. And that's so hard for us to get our minds around. You cannot surprise him. You can't stun him. He's never caught off guard. He's eternal. Then he calls him my God. How can someone so massive be so intimate with me, he says. He's the infinite personal God. And he calls my God. Same words Jesus used on the cross, same words you and I can use. My God. I can know him. He's a, he's a father who loves me. He, he, has, he knows me entirely. I can have a relationship with him that is intimate and it's consistent. This is good news. Then he says he's holy, which means he's good. There's no evil in God at all. There's no impurity. He is pure. He does not make mistakes. Everything he does is good. Every decision he makes is good. So Habakkuk says, I'm not going to let my experience define God. I'm going to let God interpret my experience, and I'm going to do that by what I know about him. I believe he's everlasting. He's eternal. I believe he's holy, and he's my God. Then he says, he's sovereign. He says, you've ordained them. Limitless power, limitless authority. He is in control. When God wills something, when he decrees something, nothing can stop it. Sometimes people say, Sam, don't you believe in free will? Of course I believe in free will. You make choices, you make decisions all the time, but make no mistakes. We make those decisions on a ship over which Jesus Christ is the captain. And he's at the helm of the ship. And there's insurrection on the ship and all kinds of stuff going on in the ship. And there's mutiny on the ship. But he is going to take that ship to the place he has destined it to be. He's absolutely sovereign, which means nothing in the world is outside of his control. He rules over nations. He rules over human history. You can trust him. No one else can do that. No one is beside him, as we sang. No one is above him. Rulers nations, institutions, even churches, they all have an end. He never has an end. He is sovereign. And just because something's out of your hands doesn't mean it's out of his hands. He's over all of history. He's moving it to the very point that he has determined, and that is where Jesus Christ is Lord of all things, over all things. You may not be able to trust what's going on. You may not even be able to trust yourself, but you can trust him. And I was thinking, um, I told the first service, how can I illustrate this? It's so hard to get our mind around. And it's a poor illustration, and I admit it, but it's the best I've got. Have you ever watched a program and recorded it? Uh, you probably did not watch the Ole Miss or game yesterday. You probably didn't record it, that is. You probably watched it and wept, but you didn't record. But if you ever record, watch a television show, a dramatic story or some game, you record it, and you're going to go back and watch it again, and it's just not the same because you know the end. You, there's no suspense. You, you, well, our life, we get so frustrated. 
And we freak out. And it's like God says to us, hey, I've already seen this episode. I know what's coming. It's going to be okay. It's really going to be okay. He's sovereign. I was at the gym this last week and, and saw David Smith there. And, and David uh, told me some things that God is teaching him. And, and he said, one of the things that he's learning is that control and trust cannot coexist. When you're trying to stay in control, it's really hard to trust the God who is in control. He says one of the reasons he's learning, one of the reasons that we have worry and we have anxiety is because we're in control of things and it's an illusion that we have that we can be in control rather than trusting the one who is in control. So Habakkuk just says, this is where I'm planting my feet. He's an absolute sovereign God. And then he says, he's a judge. He says, you're going to take those people to judgment. And some of us get really upset because justice is not done. They're guilty. They ought to pay. They, they're getting off scot-free. That's not right. Nobody gets off scot-free. There will come a day when God will judge. In fact, the Bible says he has appointed a day in which he will judge all of the earth. And when you stand before him, you're not standing in front of a mirror. In fact, John 5 says you're standing before Jesus himself, and he will exercise judgment. He has the right to say you're wrong. He has the right to say that's not right. He has the right to say I love you, but if you will not turn, you will burn. You say, I don't like that. That's what it means when it says he's the judge. No wonder Habakkuk says, my rock. You're the rock. I'm, I get knocked over so easy, things upset me. I'm planning my, I'm anchoring myself on the one thing that does not change on my rock. I might not know what's going on. I might not know what you're doing. But I'm going to recall the things I know about you to be true. Years ago, when I was going through one of the darkest periods of, of my life, and I literally did not know what to do, Frank Thomas, who was the pastor at Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church, called me up and asked me to lunch. We later became friends, but he took me to lunch. He told me about a really dark time in his life, and he said, let me tell you what I learned. When you're going through the darkest moment in your life, go to the deepest thing you know about God and hold on to that. I said, Frank, what's the deepest thing you know about God? And he said, God is compassionate. Then he said, Sam, what's the deepest thing you know about God? I said, that he is sovereign. He's in absolute control. This is what Habakkuk does. He anchors himself in the truth that he knows about God. So the Babylonians are ruthless. They're violent. They're psycho. They're coming. What do you do? You anchor yourself in the truth about God. You say, well, how does that help? How does that help? Well, it means you see things in your life. You see what's coming. Not so much like you're on Beale Street and some dark alley and a thug comes to you with a broken bottle. Rather, you see what's coming as a surgeon who wants the best for you and he holds a scalpel and he's never slipped and he's never done it less than perfect and he does things that he does for your health. Changes everything. So when you don't understand, the place to begin is what you know, what the Bible says about God, which is why we 
gather to worship on Sunday mornings. It's why we sing the songs that we do and we read God's Word and we pray and we try to encourage each other and remind each other who is our God and what is He like. It's a great encouragement. Some of you came in with real real issues. Some of you came in with stuff that's just so heavy on your heart. And we gather on Sunday morning to remind ourselves of what our God is like. But we still have questions. Like Habakkuk, look at chapter 1, verse 13, very next verse. He says, you who are of purer eyes than than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? How can God who is holy and righteous let these kind of things go on? They're the bad guys. You're going to use them? I mean, we're not that bad. Um, when the bad guys get it, that's good for us. We go to a movie, and at the very end of the movie, the bad guy gets it. We're, we're fine. What is not so good is when the bad guy is on top and the, the good guys are down below. And there's this reversal. There's this upset. So... You work really hard at your job. You work with integrity. Uh, you do the best. You're loyal to the company. You're doing it for the good of, of, of the business. You do the best you can. Promotion time comes. And the guy who gets promoted is lazy, and he has cheated his way out of all kinds of things, and he's schmoozing with the boss, and he gets promoted, and you get forgotten. And you go, that's upside down. Why? Or maybe you had a lucrative career and you got married and you begin to have kids and you made the decision, you know, I'm going to invest in my kids and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to I'm, maybe I'll just stay at home. And you look around at all your friends and they're at brunch and they got lots of money and they don't have to have a budget like you do. And you go, this is upside down. What? I don't, I don't understand. God, Why? Why? So when you're troubled by what the Puritans called God's strange providence, where do you go? You turn on the news, you uh, look at the latest updates on Twitter, well over 2,600 years later, we come together because there's a message for us that he gave Habakkuk. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk said, I don't understand. I will take my stand at my watch post. I'll station myself on the tower. I'll look out to see what he'll say to me, what I will answer concerning my complaints. I'm going to listen to God. I'm putting myself in a place, a position. I'm going to position myself to best hear from God. And then God speaks to him and says this, verse 2, the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. In other words, what I'm getting ready to tell you, Habakkuk, is not just for you. It is for every generation that comes along. It is a message for everybody, every generation of people. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, God's not obligated to do this. Habakkuk already knows what God is like. Job, another person in the Old Testament, had the same kinds of questions, and he didn't get an answer. All he got from God was, I'm God, you're not, trust me. But Habakkuk gets more information. 
And what the Lord says to him is this, I'm going to show you what happens at the end. All you can see is what is right in front of you. I want you to get from my perspective. So come up on the balcony with me. I want you to see what I see. Verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. It's the key verse in the entire book. It's repeated three different times, twice by the Apostle Paul in Romans and Galatians and once by the author of, of Hebrews. The righteous, and he's not talking about people who are perfect. I think he's talking about people at that time and people like who are in this room who long for righteousness in your country, in your life, in your family. You're the kind of people Jesus spoke about when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. And he says, righteous people, you have a hunger for righteousness, you live by faith. And then God says, let me just clarify something for you. There are only two kinds of people. Let me simplify this. There are two, only two kinds of people in the world. There are people who trust me, and there are people who trust themselves. And the people who trust me are humble, and the people who trust themselves are proud. He says they're puffed up. The gravitational center of their life is, is themselves. And he said, really, that's what we're looking at. And then he goes on to describe what it happens or what it's like to be proud, what God sees. Verse 5, moreover, wine, it could be translated wealth, is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is white as Sheol, like death. He never has enough. What he says is this. Their heart is twisted. Their heart is sick. And they never can get enough. They can never rest. There's nothing that really satisfies them. And God says, I'm going to use people like this to purify my own people. But make no mistake. Their day is coming, and the rest of this chapter contains five woes, W-O-E-S, like woe is me, judgment is coming. It's a word that was used in funerals, and so God is going to predict what's going, he's going to predict the funerals of the people who are coming in, the Babylonians who are so ruthless. Let me just give you what, what I saw here. Verses 4 through 8, he talks about people who abuse power to accumulate wealth. That happens in every generation. People take what is not theirs. And God says, sooner or later, they'll reap what they sow. The plunderers will be plundered. Verses 9 through 11, he talks about people who do anything to stay in power. You know, there are some people, if they cannot be in power and control, they will burn the house down. And he said, he said the Babylonians are like that. You know, around Babylon, there was a wall that had a hundred gates in it. And the top of the wall was so wide, you could drive four chariots side by side. And God just says, the very stones that make up the wall of that city will cry out against those people. They will be, they will be destroyed. In verses 12 through 14, he talks about people who count human life of such little value, shedding of innocent blood. And he says, that will end. In verses 15 through 17, he talks about immoral people who manipulate People seducing them into sexual sin, pornographers, people who abuse drugs, people who abuse women, rapists. He says, at the end, they'll be disgraced. 
And then in verses 18 through 20, he talks about idolaters. He's not too much talking about people who bow down before a, something wooden or a, a stone. Idolatry is when you worship something you make. Could be your career. Could be your family. Your God is whatever gives you meaning in your life. Your God is whatever you cannot live without. Your God is what makes you feel important. And he said, he says, idolaters have an end brought to them. And he says, write this down. Write this down. Every generation needs to know and make it plain. Tell my people wickedness in every realm, financial, political, devaluing of human life, sexual seduction, idolatry, I will finally and completely do away with and destroy. Tell my people that human history is headed to the time where the glory, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth like waters cover the sea. That's where I'm taking it. So what are you going to do about evil in the world, God? I'll deal with it. And I'm going to cause my glory to cover the entire earth. So how do you keep from being overwhelmed? First thing is, I anchor myself in the truth that I know about God. And second, I walk by faith. I remember that I am called to walk by faith. And I'm to evaluate not on the basis of what I can see, because I can be overwhelmed by that. Some of you came in today and you got so many things going on in your life, you just feel so discouraged. It's all you can see. But you walk by faith thinking, there's something going on more than I can see. There is a God who is invisible and I cannot see him, but he is in control and he has already seen where this is going. And he's telling me, trust me. And you find this all through the Bible. God comes to an Abraham and says, I'm going to give you as many descendants as the sands on the seashore, many as the stars in the sky. Abraham just happens to be 100 years old. And his wife is 90 and they have never been able to have babies. What are the odds of that happening? Whoever heard of a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman who's never been able to have children, they have, a, they, they have as many descendants as the stars in the sky. What are the odds? Zero. But Romans 4 says Abraham believed God. He believed God. He couldn't see it. He looked at the problem. He was very aware of it. He believed God. And that was counted to him as righteousness, and it actually began to happen. Or God comes to a 14-year-old virgin, and the angel says to her, you're going to conceive, you're going to have a baby, and he will be the Holy One of God, the Son of the Most High. When did you ever hear of a virgin conceiving? What are the odds of that happening? Zero. And yet she says, I don't know how, but be it to me according to your word. I trust you. And the power of the Almighty came up over, over on her and overshadowed her, and she was pregnant. All through the Bible, who ever heard of people walking around a wall seven times and it falls down? Who ever heard of uh, three men going into a fire and rather than being burned up, they, they survive and not only that, they thrive. Walking by faith means I don't make my evaluations and draw my conclusions based on the observable facts. I look at those facts. I'm very aware of it. I'm not in denial, but I'm aware that there's a God who I cannot see who is driving 
things toward the end that he has predetermined and it's glorious and he's in control of what is happening in my life right now. So two things about faith, about walking by faith. Faith rests in the plan and the power and the promise of God. It's what Abraham did. It's what Mary did. Faith rests in the plan and the power and the promise of God. And faith opens the door to joy. We'll talk about that next week and end this. But just as a kind of a, a teaser, look at Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Spoiler alert. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. I mean, what? How can it get worse? There's, the flocks are cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I'm going to look for grapes. But my joy does not depend on those on getting grapes. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. We'll talk about that next week. Now, roll the story forward 600 years. We're still in Jerusalem, same as in Habakkuk. And uh, Babylon has been destroyed, lasted only 100 years. They took the people out, the exile, lasted 70 years. People came back in, rebuilt the city, rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the walls. Now it's Rome. It's just Babylon with another face just as, as brutal as Babylon, and go into the hall of justice, and once again, we find a politically motivated judge named Pontius Pilate, and you want to say, God, why are you, let, why, why are you letting him be there? And you've got a prejudiced jury, and you go, God, why are you allowing this injustice to take place? And see the man standing there with his hands tied, and you go, God, why are you letting this take place? Why is this going on? Why don't you do something? And see that same man brought out by soldiers with heavy boots, stripped naked, mocked, spit upon, punched. They took a thorn bush and fashioned this kind of a crown and pressed it into his head. And you go, why don't you do something, God? And then you see him nailed to a cross, and you go, God, where are you? Why don't you do something? Why don't you stop this? And it looked like defeat. What people could only see was defeat. The disciples, it's the end of our dreams. It's the death of our dreams. They fled, all except John and some women. They did a little bit better, but they walked away. It's all over. All you could see was defeat with questions. God, why didn't you do something? Peter Kreft is a philosopher, Christian philosopher, and I read something last week that he wrote that really has me thinking. He said, Calvary is like judo. Calvary is like judo. When I was in sixth grade, my Sunday school teacher had been a martial arts instructor in the Marines. And he taught us judo. He would do a little Bible lesson. And he said, guys, when we finish reading the Bible, I'm going to teach you how to kill a man in seven seconds. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. What sixth grade kid doesn't want to hear that? So he taught us a little bit about judo. And what I remember 
uh, don't remember a lot of the Bible, but I do remember this. <laughs> he said, the, whole, the, the principle behind judo is you use your opponent's momentum against him. You use his strength against him. And Satan determined to kill the Son of God. And what was deemed as the worst evil, God takes it and uses it for the highest possible good. And that is the salvation of millions of people. Jesus rises from the dead, and God has taken something using the momentum, the strength against the evil. So it's like, like Judo. I anchor myself in the truth about God, and I think I'm not going to draw conclusions only based on what I can see. I'm going to walk by faith. And sometimes the best way to understand this is to actually see it in the life of a person. So let me tell you about Nick Foles. He was drafted by the NFL in 2012, backup quarterback for the Eagles until 2018 when Carson Wentz was injured, season-ending injury, and Foles led the Eagles to a Super Bowl win, and he was named the MVP of the Super Bowl. Huge contract that he got the next year, this year actually, with the Jacksonville Jaguars. First time in his pro career, he's a starting quarterback for an NFL franchise, but it didn't go like he planned because in the very first game, he broke his collarbone. He broke the left clavicle. And they interviewed him. He's a Christian. And I want you to see if you can hear echoes of Habakkuk in what he says. Watch this. So week after week, not playing, you're a football player. You're watching this young kid go out. This Minshew mania is going crazy. I know you're a man of faith, and I know you're trying, but you're also human. I mean, ever any doubts coming up in your mind as you go through that? No, that's where, you know, right when, this, right when I felt this thing break and I was going into the locker room, I just realized, you know, I just realized, God, this wasn't exactly what I was thinking when I came to Jacksonville. Obviously, you come here and you want to create a culture and impact people. But at the end of the day, as I got it, this is the journey you want me to go on. I'm going to glorify you in every action, um, good or bad. And, you know, I still could have joy in an injury. Um, and that, that's people hear that and say, that's crazy. But it's like when you believe in Jesus and you, you go out there and you play, and that's, that changes your heart. And you only understand it when, you know, that purpose in your life, just like when I hoisted the Lombardi Trophy. The reason I'm smiling is my faith was in Christ. In that moment, I realized I didn't need that trophy to define who I was because it was already in Christ. And that's my message when I play. Same thing happens when I get injured. We tend to make this so much about us as human beings. We tend to make it about us as athletes. It's not about us. It really isn't. And if you make it about yourself, you're probably going to go home at night, lay your head on your pillow, and be very alone and very sad. And then hopefully someday you can find that purpose in your life. Because my purpose isn't football, it's impacting people. And I, my, my ministry happens to be the locker room. And I've been able still to get to know people, get to know these guys through an injury. Though I might not be playing, that is difficult from a fleshly perspective. But from the spiritual perspective, from my heart, I've been able to grow as a human being to where I feel like I'm at a better situation here as a person than I was before because of the trial I just went under. And I know that's a sermon in itself, but... That's how I go through life, and the good Lord's been there to, you know, it's not always about prosperity. I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I believe if you read the Word of God and you understand it, there's trials along the way, but they equip your heart to be who you are. So two-minute sermon with seven points. Here are the points. Number one, I'm still going to glorify God in every action, good or bad. You hear athletes all the time, I'm glorifying God because they win. How many, many of us have heard an athlete when he loses, when he's broken, and he glorifies 
God. God's ability to be glorified is not contingent on a win or a loss. Number two, I can still have joy in an injury. How do you have joy when you're injured? I mean, shouldn't that rob you of joy? You be, you, you, the game that you love. But joy, he says, is not dependent on circumstances. It's dependent on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Number three, he says, the reason I'm smiling is my faith is in Christ. And in that moment, I realized I didn't need that trophy to define who I was. He's talking about the Super Bowl and the MVP. That didn't define me, he says. Winning's great. Sports are great. That didn't define me. Number four, it's not about us. My purpose in life isn't football. It's impacting people. Do you hear Anything of Habakkuk, that the way you get through pain is perspective? He understands his purpose goes far beyond the game he's playing. If his primary purpose is football, he breaks his collarbone, his spirit's broken, but it's not. Number five, my ministry happens to be in the locker room. I I love this for two reasons. Number one, he's not a professional minister, but he understands he is a minister and he is an ambassador of Christ and he has a ministry and He says, it's the trainers and the other players and the coaches and the support staff in the locker room. You want to go, wait a minute, you're the biggest name in sports these days. Millions of fans, shouldn't they be your ministry? He said, no, no, my ministry is the people in my life. My ministry is people that I know. That's, that's That's my platform. Number six, he says, I feel like I'm in a better situation as a person here because of the trial that I went under. This just sounds like Romans 5 and James 1. Suffering leads to perseverance, and perseverance leads to, leads to character. And number six, he says, I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. And you go, what is the prosperity gospel? It just says this. The prosperity gospel says God always want you, wants you to win. And if you don't win, if you're not always on top, your problem is your faith. You don't have enough faith. And he just said, there are trials that come and go. That's just, that's just the life that we have. And God has a purpose behind all of it. It's not my lack of faith. My faith is I'm trusting the one who is in control of all things and who loves me, and that does not define me what I do. So we anchor ourselves in what we know about God, and we walk by faith. You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com.